there, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis, Christianity in Genesis. Where do we see the person and work of Christ and also, by extension, life in him? What it looks like to live and move and have our being in that person and work of Christ as members of one body, Christ Jesus himself being the head, the cornerstone, and so on, as the New Testament puts it. I suppose I should be clear here that I'm I'm working with the conviction that the Old Testament is not just some sort of background material um, for the New Testament. Not yet. Does it have historical background? Does it provide some sort of chronology? Does it have this? Yes. But it does a lot more than that. It not only is a historical report of what happened before the incarnation of our Lord, but it is also Christian scripture. That is, these um, these accounts, these narratives, uh, the poetry, and whatever else you have here is sacred writing. It is inspired. It still speaks a meaningful word because the subject matter is more than just what happened one time, once in, uh, upon a time, in one place, in one time, and so on. Uh, that works. That's that's the conviction that it is it is sacred history. For example, if it's if you're dealing with something like a historical narrative, something took place in time and space. But at the same time, uh, what happened there has meaning and significance for God's people of all times and places. In fact, I would go so far uh, and be with Luther here and to say that these narratives, these accounts in Genesis are actually constitutive. They're actually, that's my word, not his. It's, they actually constitute what life in the church is all about. We saw that a lot with Cain and Abel last time. Two churches, the church of Cain, the church of Abel. This will be the situation until the end of the world, until, until our Lord returns. We will have a church of Cain and a church of Abel. This historical narrative is not just historical reportage, this is actually something that has eternal significance, telling us about two churches for all times. And I would like to press that a little bit further here in chapter 5. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world are we going to do with a bunch of of names and, uh, let's see, ages and so on? It's a genealogy, Genesis chapter 5. You get cruising in the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, 3. How can you say enough about all those Genesis 4? Last time Cain and Abel, then Genesis 5. Whammo genealogy. What do you do with this? Well, I'll I'll walk through some of this here. I'm not going to spend time on every detail, but I do want you to get a sense of how we might speak of the person and work of Christ in even a genealogy like we have in Genesis chapter 5. Notice how it begins. I'll read a few verses here, and then we'll go from there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. 
Alrighty, now first thing first, and that is we are getting a kind of new beginning. This is a new beginning here. This is sort of like a new heaven and new earth before you get to Revelation here about a new heaven and new earth. I love the way that Genesis 5 does this. Notice, what does it do? It starts like Genesis 1 all over again, only it's written from a particular perspective. This is the book of the generations of when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. There's Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. That's all Genesis 1. And then when we have the, the third verse there, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice what happened. We skipped over Cain and Abel. So first thing you got to know is like this is let's start over as it were. Let's have a fresh start. And, you know, Cain and Abel aren't even there. It's as if that's already been purged. It's a new beginning of sorts. We don't even get a mentioning of them. We go straight to Seth through whom the promised seed will come. And through that promised seed by Seth and others in this list, we will we will get a fresh start, which is exactly the kind of thing that our Lord does for us, for his people of all times and places. Again and again, he gives them this create in me a brand new heart and renew a right spirit within me. Give me a fresh start. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Give me a brand new start. And already in this seemingly mundane genealogy, you get a sense of that. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness and image. So huge for for a kind of fresh start. Also, why is this fresh start possible? Because of the one to come through Seth, God is good to his promises. He carries this forward, even though the the, the, the debacle of Cain and Abel, um, God has not forgotten his promise. Also notice what's mentioned here, and that is the image of God, male and female. So yes, there is sin in the world. Anyone who has read Genesis 3 knows that there is now sin and things are totally corrupt. And you might be wondering as a reader of Genesis, well, are we still made in the image of God? Is that totally obliterated? Is it just a thing of the past, of bygone times, and so on? This reasserts that even after the fall, look at this, Adam lived 130, he fathered a son after his image, after his likeness. Yes, the image of God is now distorted, it's corrupted, it's perverted, and yet this image remains male and female remain. You might hear the argument that, well, you know, nothing's perfect. It's a broken world. And, you know, so also with gender. Here in Genesis 5, we get the assertion that even in a corrupt and fallen state, we have image and likeness and male and female. That's big. Of course, think about Christianity and where these have come up. Image itself, I don't know how much of a deal I made on this uh, with chapter 1, but image and likeness, absolutely huge. So one thing is just it sets humanity apart from all of creation. Nothing will reflect God the way that that uh, humanity does. And then even more specifically, this male and female, This it's basically a direct quote from Genesis 1. Something very unique about God is reflected in male and female, in a gendered humanity, in a binary humanity. The complementarity, for example, that exists between male and female, 
bears witness in its own way to the complementarity that exists within the Trinity itself. Three, a kind of plurality, and yet at the same time a unity, three in one. Well, humanity is the same. You could just create, if you want a bunch of people, just make 10 billion people, right? But he makes a gendered humanity that reflects a a higher complementarity. It reflects something about there's a plurality and a, and a unity in God. There's also a plurality, two genders, and a unity, humanity, uh, in man. And so these are, and that's just the beginning, of course, male and female. Well, there's also going to be marriage, of course, one flesh. Now, that is at the epitome of this image of God stuff because why marriage at all if not to bear witness or reflect a much greater marriage between God and his people? And this is just straight out of Ephesians 5 when Paul says, hey, um, this mystery is profound that I'm saying that it speaks of Christ and the church, this whole creation of Eve from the side of Adam. This was plan A salvation all along. And so, so also with the image of God, if I had to, if you take it to its um, ultimate conclusion, the image of God has everything to do with salvation. If you attack the image, you're going after God's plan of salvation. You're going after yes, uh, uh, the the prime jewel of the crown jewel of his of his creation, something very special. Think again, reason and intellect and the mind and all the creativity and so on. You know some of these attributes that people have identified over the ages as kind of separating us in the class apart from animalistic behavior and so on. But even beyond that is God's plan of salvation is reflected in humanity, in male and female, in marriage, the one flesh union, and so on. This is from the get-go plan A. He creates in a way that shows how he's going to save, and that includes image of God stuff. And that includes this even in a fallen world, male, female, image of God, likeness. Notice verse 3 again that this, it's repeated, um, the image and likeness. And then in verse 3, it's he fathered a son in his own image after his, uh, in his own likeness after his image. Um, Both of those terms are repeated to say this carries on. And this is huge because even in a fallen state, Humanity is reflecting the story of salvation, and that needs to be extolled throughout the life of the church. Gender, um, the complementarity, marriage, and so on, all these things, even the sanctity of life, life in the womb and so on, all of these things bear witness in unique ways to God's plan of salvation, even in a fallen state. That's why these things need to be so carefully honored among us and extolled. This is never just a thing about me, uh, my gender. You know, you hear these, my sexuality, my gender. These things um, are part of a much greater narrative, uh, finally a holy, sanctified, sacred narrative that the scriptures are bearing witness to as it speaks of these categories, gender and sexuality and marriage and so on. Okay, and then following, we're going to get some people living a long time. Have you wondered about this? I suppose, uh, what should we say? One thing is, I mean, some people have pointed out the effects of sin. So right out of the gate, I mean, in the Garden of Eden, Luther would have said Adam had the eyesight of an eagle and all these things. And 
would have been able to wrestle bears like we handle puppies and <laughs> this kind of thing. Um, creation is now corrupt. Creation is groaning, um, eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our bodies. And all of the, I mean, when the hills are mourning and the things are, the rocks are split up and so on. There's all sorts of, all sorts of issues in this broken creation. And as time moves along, um, people just aren't living as long. And that's one thing that's just kind of a, a straightforward answer of things. I mean, but I think even beyond that, what I would focus on is that even beyond just how long they lived, which is given, is uh, the line th- through which the, Messi- the Messiah, the Savior, would come. Um, it's very, we get this, when you're told that Adam had other sons and daughters, we're queued up to something that's beyond just a genealogy, um, as, as we kind of naturally understand that. Hey, he had other sons and daughters. By the way, I'll just tell you about one of them. Well, something else is going on there more important than just a regular family tree. You're telling me there's lots of other people invo- involved, but I'm going to tell you about Seth. And when Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And then Seth, Seth lived after this. All the days of Seth were this, and then he died. Um, there's something more going on than just telling me all descendants. There's a focus here on God preserving a line for the Messiah. This is kind of a its own, I don't know, rebirth to the church, you might even say. Another age, a fresh look a picture of a fresh start that the, that God gives upon his church throughout the generations. I mean, if there's one thing that I would say about all these names and the, and the long lies is that God preserved, that's a long time, 905 years, the next one, Enosh. Uh, Kenan was 910. Uh, Mahalalel was 895. This is a long time. God spared them from what terrible disease and all these things God preserved uh, age after age, generation after generation, his church. And I think in in some ways that's reflected here, even in this simple genealogy. Now, let me tell you also about Enoch, because this is going to be, oh my, I'm just looking at these lists here. um, And I'm looking at the time. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we got to talk a little bit about Enoch here. What an amazing event. He walked with God and he was not. What's all that uh, about? What does it mean? What's the significance for this genealogy? And finally, what does it mean for the church? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. 
And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 5. This is a look at the generations of Adam. We talked a little bit about this new start here at the beginning of the chapter. We talked also about these long lives, God preserving the line for the Messiah, preserving his church generation after generation. Uh, no matter how empty the pews are, no matter how bad whatever the offering plate is and so on, um, God has promised that he will, that the church will endure until the second coming of Christ. That's very clear. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. In fact, you know, one thing I should add to this about this whole the list, again, we got a bunch of guys, they live a long time. Uh, another thing that I think is big that Luther brings out that that is often overlooked is that these guys were also, at least for Luther, like these were high priests. These, these were preachers, preachers and teachers, proclaimers of the gospel, the one who is to come. Um, so not only does God preserve that historical line through this long, these long lives and so on, but it's also that these, it's a kind of testimony to the proclamation of the gospel. Every one of these Luther would say so many um, of these patriarchs were just, they, they were the high priest at the time. Seth was a high priest for over nine centuries. He was the bishop. Everybody would have flocked to hear his sermons about the coming seed from Eve, about forgiveness in him, about life and salvation, about a brand new start, kind of like that genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis. Everybody would have flocked. And that's, again, a, a kind of preserving. God preserves the office of the holy ministry, no matter how bad the times are getting. And you can see that also in this genealogy. Now, Enoch. Here's a great example. Enoch had lived 65. He fathered Methuselah. He'll be the oldest one, right? Maybe we know this. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay. Fascinating. Um, almost everybody in the Bible dies. Uh, think of the Old Testament. Only two, really. Enoch here, we just heard it. And then uh, can you think of the other? Elijah goes up to, right, he goes up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Okay, now this is fascinating. Enoch walking with God. Now, elsewhere, I think this is the only other time you get it in the book of Genesis. Who else is described as walking with God? And that's Noah. How do you walk with God? And again, Luther comes to mind and others on this. And that is, well, you look at Hebrews 11. Same with Abel, right? What's up with Abel's offering? Well, at the end of the day, by faith, Abel offered up a better offering. And so also this walking with God business, there was some sort of I mean, clearly, I mean, for Luther and for a lot of others, this had something to do with faith. He was on, Enoch was on very good terms with God. How does that happen? Same with Abel. It comes, you're justified by faith, believing in the promised seed. 
Now you might have other questions about, well, why was it? Why wasn't I don't know Kenan or Enosh or Jared or Mahalalel or whoever else pulled up uh, instead of Enoch? What made Enoch so special? Now, in some ways, who knows? But let me tell you um, why you do something like this, or what does it indicate about the nature and character of God that you would take a person like Enoch? And for Luther, I think he's spot on. He says this is to demonstrate. Early on and throughout the generations, concrete proof, evidence of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Where's all this headed? The one who will crush the serpent's head. It's in the seed, the promised one to come. Well, we preach sermons about it. You have forgiveness in it and we confess the creed, the resurrection of the body here it's as if our Heavenly Father cannot wait to show us the end of the story. I just can't wait. Here we go, Enoch. In my infinite wisdom and mercy, you're the one. And all people will then say, oh my, this is exactly, it's kind of like, I don't know, the book of Revelation. Do you have to show us a glimpse of, you know, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven? I, we, you could just tell us and promise us and we hold to your word, but then... Revelation is, here, let me pull back the curtain a little bit and show you. I don't have to, but let me, I just, here, this is what's in store for you. This is what's already going on right now and so on. Um, Same with Enoch. Generations would speak about this. They would talk about, they would confess the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, that there is more to this life than just this life. Enoch was a, a vibrant demonstration of that. Oh my there he goes. This Enoch was a picture of what's in store for all those who live and believe and teach and confess the promised seed of Eve who is to come. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. I mean, it's just a powerful testimony of that. So then from here on out, that's even further, <laughs> pun intended, right? God fleshing out. Uh, what this promised seed is all about. This helps them preach the promised seed because by that promised seed, Enoch walked with God and then God took him to uh, eternal life of body and soul. And so already you have this this kind of uh, living witness of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. As I said, they would have preached this, they would have talked about it and so on. Um, and this would have, and in Enoch is also a, a picture of that very seed who is to come. Of course, our Lord Jesus will ascend into heaven after his bodily resurrection to live and reign and, and uh, rule for eternity and so on. And so even in this little genealogy, doesn't seem like much important is going on. Then you get this little Enoch walked with God, God took him. And that is, this is the plan of salvation busting into the present already all made possible by the one who's uh, still in the loins of, of Adam, as it were. Okay, last part of Genesis 5 here. Methuselah's the old guy, right? 969, maybe you've known this. Uh, oldest oldest one in the Bible there, almost a 1,000 years. I suppose, I mean, even to all of man, even with this, notice nobody lives over a 1,000, and of course... Um, even this longest life, 969, is but a day for our Lord. In fact, I mean, kind of almost I mean, think about the Psalms, right? A thousand years is but a day 
a day, a thousand years. This is just so even even the longest life in the Bible for our Lord is but a day. All mankind uh, is but a mere breath. Even in the midst of all this, uh, the long life and so on. Hey, in the big picture of things, we're all right there with him. A thousand years is but a day. All mankind, the transience of life, right? A pandemic comes through and we think about these things or whatever the case. Um, we get a few years on this planet and that's that. And so all of Christianity prepares for this blessed death, prepares for uh, the Enochic experience. That is, by the way... Um, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That is, by the way, why they have so many, uh, you know, there are books written, first Enoch, second Enoch. I mean, Enoch kind of, I don't know, <laughs> takes on a life of his own, I guess, in, in the sense of the literary output. Uh, so a lot of later generations would reflect on Enoch or write books named Enoch as a kind of, uh, I don't know, reverence reverence for Enoch, this kind of extolling that character, kind of enigmatic, right? Doesn't only gets a couple of verses and that's that, but very important nonetheless. Um, okay, last thing here for Genesis 5, and then we'll wrap it up, and that is Lamech. Lamech had a son called his name Noah, saying, now again, think about this. Anytime you get this little, you know, uh, at the end of chapter 4, they have Seth, and then... Um, the what is it she says eve god has appointed for me another offspring instead of abel for cain killed him anytime you get a little saying or an explanation after a name kind of a big deal and for luther it usually has something to do with this promised seed who is to come and i think he's right noah um is a word that could mean rest of sorts and um and he says lamech out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, some have concluded from this that Lamech thinks that Noah might be the Messiah, which it's possible. I don't know. But I think the, the main point is that they're looking for him. They're looking for the Messiah. They're thinking about their naming kids after the Messiah, as it were, Noah, meaning rest. Now, of course, Noah will, I mean, Noah's Ark, right? That'll be a huge narrative. And through Noah... God will put on display all sorts of things about a much greater Noah and a much greater ark of the Christian church and so on. We'll talk about that later on. Um, but nonetheless, we have this kind of this indication of all of life. They're naming their kids. They're Again, they're thinking, they're praying, they're preaching and teaching these patriarchs about this one who is to come. This is central for the life of the church as well. All of our life really, I mean, I... I don't know, just on a personal note, I named, uh, we named, my wife and I named some kids of ours after Old Testament prophets. We have a son named Zephaniah. We have a son named Amos, for example. Uh, one of our sons is named Job. It's just kind of the, you know, the reflection throughout the Christian life of what this life is all about. There's much more to this transient even if it's 969 years or just but a few days, it's really all a breath. There's much more to this life than just what it is, and that is uh, much more like the Enoch thing, and that is resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is going to be a drop in the bucket compared to the big picture there, and so why not Why not express that in various ways as we name our kids or you know, kind of go about our day-to-day, -day, speaking about the hope that lies within, always be 
ready to speak of that, as Peter would say, and so on. Finally, I just want to point out that Noah um, fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, this is another one of these indications that something big is happening. Why don't we just get one son, as we have gotten all throughout chapter 5? Well, go figure, Shem will be the one through whom the Messiah comes. He's listed first, Shem meaning name, which is fascinating, um, the one, the name through whom will uh, come the one who comes in the name of the Lord, you might say. Um, and then Ham and Japheth will have lots to say about those on the other side of the flood. Uh, they will, I suppose you could say, reflect uh, two different approaches to the forgiveness of sins. Or you might say, if Shem is the line of the true church, uh, Ham will be the false church and Yepheth would be the ones that are kind of grafted in. Now I'm getting ahead of myself and I'll say more about that when we get to chapter nine, but just already in this, already in this last verse, when you get Noah fathering three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you get like true church, false church, and the ones that really deserve nothing but punishment and yet have been mercifully grafted into that true church. There's there's a lot to say there, and that's that's kind of like you know reading backwards, as it were, knowing how the story's going to unfold, and then reading it again and knowing, oh my, these are the three. But nonetheless, um, good enough here for chapter five as far as the fresh start that we have in the one who is to come, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting that endures into eternity um, because of his person and work. Wow, talk about a, a rich helping of. Christianity in the book of Genesis, even in a, in, a, in a genealogy as we had there. That's all the time we have for this episode, but tune in next time. We'll talk more about uh, Christianity in Genesis with chapter 6. What a doozy. Hey, the mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.